Hello guys, welcome back to On The Back Bar, joined by me, Christopher Minnie, your host. I have a wonderful show ahead of you today. This is the episode with Lauren Mote, who is the global cocktailian for World Class and the co-founder of Bittered Sling, Bitter's company. Lauren has spent 24 years in hospitality and has had an incredible, inspiring journey, which we talk about today. We touch on a number of topics from homemade fermentation to inspiring a generation to be the next leaders in hospitality and the drinks world. You can find out all the information on Gastronomer Lifestyle, or you can head over to our social media accounts on the Back Bar Instagram. And please look at Patreon, where we are building a community and a fan base, where you can be involved in the conversation. So, without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it, and I'll talk to you all at the end. Let's roll the intro. Benjamin Franklin once said, In wine there is wisdom, in beer there is freedom, and in water there's bacteria. No bacteria here. This is On the Back Bar, hosted by Christopher Menning, an industry expert, author, and bartender who's been in the industry for over a decade. On the Back Bar is your gateway to talking to the people behind the scenes at bars, distilleries, and vineyards around the world. We'll talk to the experts in the industry about future trends, people, spirits, cocktails, wine, and everything else. So kick your feet up, pour your favorite drink, and hang out on the Back Bar. This is Christopher Menning. Lauren, thank you so much for being here today with us. It's really great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Oh, I'm super. I'm, I made my apartment really, really sunny. I'm dressed in tropical clothing. You know, it's, it's Amsterdam in April, which means the sun comes out and tricks you and makes you think that it's going to be spring or summer coming. And then it starts raining again for three months. So we've made oh, the nice. inside uh, a more tropical venue with tapache and you know all kinds of crazy ferments and things happening that you can sort of see there oh wow yeah brilliant yeah we're doing our best to you know to keep sane over here (laughs) okay good well i love the top it's very colorful oh thanks (laughs) (laughs) brilliant well i mean we've got a lot to talk about today um i'm really excited to have you on and i'd love to talk about the homemade stuff you're making just next to you but Mm. just for the purpose of the audience can we have a quick rundown of who lauren is and what she does for hospitality 100 percent. so i would say that this year 2020 is my 20th year bartending but it is my 24th year in hospitality and working in food and beverage and uh, sorry i should introduce myself properly my name is lauren (laughs) i'm the diageo reserve and world-class global cocktailian i'm also the co-owner or we like to say co-captain of bittered sling bitters from canada which uh, came out in 2009 and uh, I, I live in Amsterdam now with my husband, uh, just transplanted here from Vancouver, Canada in December. So we arrived here over Christmas. And just when we thought we had time to go outside, the weather became really nice. And then global situations happened. And now we've been inside for four months. But, <laughs> you know, four as months. it goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in those four months, um, it looks like you've been doing a lot of cooking and ingredient making. What are some, some of the things you've been doing? Listen, I, I got to be honest, though, when I say been inside for four months, I mean, it's been it's been five weeks of this new normal that we're in right now. And so uh, it it's actually afforded uh, my husband, Jonathan, and I more time to be at home and to be focused on 
creating our, our home or our nest, as we like to call it, into something that we really cherish and have time to appreciate being in. And all of us have been so busy over the last uh, several years. I mean, for myself and Chris, maybe for you, the same over the last you know five or 10 years, I feel like things have been ramping up, getting busier and busier. Uh, and it made it almost challenging to appreciate your home life. And so being at home now, I feel like I've almost reverted back to where I was 10 years ago, where I was really focused on making, you know, uh, home ferments and making kombucha, making kvass, making, you know, tapache, making all the things that I love to drink. And uh, I just never had time to do it. I mean, everyone goes through these phases where they're now in like the sourdough phase of their, mm -hmm. you know, their, their home uh, lockdown or their situation where, you know, you see it on Instagram and today I'm making sourdough. It's like, ah, that's where you are in this phase. So we are in the tapache phase at the moment. Where we've started making our own mixers. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Well, that sounds very exciting. Yeah. I, I see you've got an impressive array of books behind you as well. That, um, that must be some good reading you've got going on. Yeah, when we, we got made fun of a lot, actually, when we moved uh, from Vancouver, because we were trying to figure out what we were going to take. And everyone said, oh, so you're going to take your bed and your furniture. And we're like, no, no, we're going to put our special cases of alcohol, the one of a kind things in our storage locker in Vancouver. And we are going to ship all of our books and get rid of everything else. People thought, really? That's sort of a strange priority. And it's like, well, when you've cultivated a giant collection of reading material over the last, um, you know, 20 years, and, you know, for some people, they enjoy going online to, to research and to find information, but we are, we're page turners, you know, we like to actually yeah. physically pick up books and, um, and make notes and put post-it notes. We also have, you know, thousands of moleskins hanging around that are, are just filled to the brim Same with information. Me. Yeah. And they're all, <laughs> but they're all reference books. You know, we have very little yeah. fiction on the shelves behind us and we, we zip into a lot of different uh, realms as well. So we study, you know, philosophy and globalization, international relations. And then there's like the food and beverage and ingredient culture books on top of that. So we find it makes like a really nice blend of how things come okay. together. What's been a, a top book you've been reading this year? one you'd recommend i'm gonna grab it i'm gonna show you okay sure <laughs> so we used to do uh we used to do these book clubs and and then people stopped showing up because it got nice out and i think people were just venturing outside more so we don't do our book club anymore but um some of the books right now this which is like a quintessential book uh that was nice. you know that I mean, MFK Fisher, Mary Frances Fisher is an incredible food writer, and she basically documented, you know, the quintessential stories related to cooking and culinary uh, before food writing was really a thing, um, okay. which was very cool. And then these books as well, which are always great. So I think when, when I started studying about food and beverage and started writing, because my career, even before the place that I'm in right now, uh, I did do some journalism. I had had been a publicist previously, studied communications, um, along with other things. So the Jeffrey, the Jeffrey Steingarten books uh, were okay. the first two that I read that personified things in the food industry, like you know, personifying a, a vegetable or a plant as if it was like a living thing that uh, was able to join you on your adventure rather than, yeah, we just eat something on a plate. It sort of brings, you know, culture, philosophy, yeah. flavor and food together in a way that I hadn't experienced before. So that was pretty cool. 
That's been a big part of your career as well, I think, with cocktail making, sort of bringing in um, flavours and refocusing them, bringing the food elements in too. You know, your, your relationship with Jonathan, I guess that's had a big influence on it. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes all the difference when you end up marrying a chef. And yeah. it's, uh, and what's interesting as well, there's a, there's a lot of couples that, uh, that can't work together, uh, that become very challenging uh, when they spend 24-7 in a work-live environment. But I, I had always thought that um, if, if I was going to you know, pair up with somebody for life, it needed to be someone that really had the same values in terms of personal and professional that I had. And you know, working, working with, with chefs, it just helps you as a bartender and as a, as a sommelier, as somebody that understands flavors in the, in the liquid form, helps you to understand flavors in a very, very different way. I mean, quite quite an antique way or an ancient way. I mean, when we've got, you know, books about beverage from, you know, 200 years ago, if we're trying to compare like Jerry Thomas to LaRousse Gastronomique, for example, it's uh, makes for some really interesting conversations because there are very few chefs out there that really understand beverage. And I guess the, the art of bartending and the art of mixology in the way that a lot of us uh, practice today and you know Jonathan was always very interested in that in the translation of flavors into liquid form and so that was very cool so yeah a lot of the books on here are his as well <laughs> great <laughs> well for the audience um, I'll get the name of the books later and I'll put them in the show notes so people can have a look so Lauren you, you obviously um, you spend a lot of your time working with uh, world-class uh, global educator what was um, can you tell us your journey into that and how you got to that position Oh boy. So if this can be a fairly long answer, then <laughs> that's what we'll Please do. <laughs> <go for it. laughs> We're so, all the details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mentioned that, uh, that I've been, been in hospitality for 24 years and, uh, you know, I, I was sharing with a few people on our happy hour call last night. Uh, they said, so what was your first job? And I said, well, oh my gosh, how do I even begin here? I, my first job was when I was 14 or 15 and I worked at a gourmet burger shop in Toronto in the beaches that uh, that had a really unique way of placing orders. It was like the singing burger shop. So every time you placed an order, you had to sing the order to the people that were wow. <laughs> on the other side of the grill. And they were, you know, that was their pickup. And, you know, being my, that was my first job <laughs> in the food industry. It was hilarious. I thought, oh my gosh, are all of these places going to be like this? Can we have this much fun and doing these, these weird like song competitions and songs about chicken burgers and, you know, vegetarian <laughs> burgers and whatever. So I worked for it there for three years and it, it, it was really interesting. It, it's, you know, the way that people come together in these one-on-one -on -one situations in, you know, whether it's like quick service or fast food or fine dining, I think the interaction with people is, is the thing that becomes the, the really memorable moment for, for a lot of people. And as I, as I continued, I was, I was in school, I went to university, I studied international relations and peace and conflict studies. I took, uh, you know, I, I went to coffee college with, uh, with Starbucks when they first came to Canada and in Toronto in 2000. I've, I've worked in a lot of different aspects of food and beverage. And I think the, the, the one thing that always resonated is that the table was very, very important to me. So while I was, I didn't really want to become a professional chef because there's something about being behind closed doors that really stressed me out that I couldn't have that face-to-face -face interaction with people. But then it brought sort of like the team brigade into a different way of being hosp uh, hospitable within your team. And I thought that was really interesting. So I, I was just trying to find 
find the right place. I was obsessed with food and flavor, obsessed with culture, with understanding, you know, people and, and what, you know, helps drive them to certain tastes and flavors and, you know, styles of cuisine and beverage and wine. So I just studied everything that I could and somehow managed to, to bring my, you know, my university, um, you know, experience into that with international culture and, and what make people tick. And I guess from there, it just sort of evolved and I continued to open businesses. My first business was called Mademoiselle Chef Catering. And this was back in, I think it was 2001, <laughs> which was just like a local, a local catering company that I did in a neighborhood that um, was doing, uh, you know, things in people's houses. It gave me the opportunity to learn from a lot of my books and from the Food Network and sort of put that to task in, in people's homes and, and making really beautiful food. And then it just evolved from there. And I think my first my first actual bartending job was, was in 2000, but I didn't, because cocktails weren't really a thing in Toronto at that point, it was hard to really fall in love with what we were doing. I thought it was interesting and I enjoyed the, the face-to-face interaction with guests, but I felt that the creativity was lacking in a lot of ways because we, it just wasn't as cool as food, you know, at that point. It hadn't gone through the resurgence and affected Toronto in the way that it had in other parts of the world. And sure. so, you know, over that, um, I, I guess, five five to 10 year period, I was, you know, I was bartending and working in, in different bars and restaurants and and really just doing it because it was good cash. It was really great interactions with guests and the teams were really cool. I loved the late nights and sort of the culture of, um, you know, the, the high energy culture of uh, late night spending time with people. And I guess from there, it, uh, it transformed into wine training. And so one of the, one of the greatest roles that I had was um, working at a Toronto institution called Le Select Bistro. And they had been open since 1978, owned by two gentlemen, one person from Provence and another person from Alsace. And the two of them had owned this business um, for, at that time, over, over 30 years. And they brought some really unique and crazy people together that, uh, that worked in front and back of house that were all obsessed with food and flavor. And it became the, you know, this really thick wine book, which I've got on the shelf here. And if you were learning about wine and beverage to be a server, even in this venue, you had to understand like a pretty good chunk of that book, understanding Chateauneuf de Pape, understanding the differences between Bordeaux and Burgundy. And for like a bartender coming in, if you didn't have that training and W set probably wasn't that popular back then, or ISG wasn't that popular. So um, you had to learn on the job. So my, my studies ended up taking me into the wine world and I, I, I became a, a sommelier and did all of my training and again tried to blend the worlds of I guess spirits, food and wine together as much as I could and it wouldn't be until 2007 when I moved to Vancouver that I'd be able to put that to the test and to be honest in, in Vancouver, I agreed to move there before I had even been there. I just knew that as a focal point for cuisine and culture and you know the eating locally or global, um, even just working with farms, the 100 mile diet, everything was so prevalent on the West Coast in Canada and it wasn't really seeing that same action in say Toronto and Montreal and places in, in the more central part of Canada. 
So I worked for, uh, for, at that point, I think he was the only chef that had competed on Iron Chef. I was working for Rob Feeney at Lumiere in 2007 and running the, the bar program in Vancouver. And the bar program, it, you, you acted almost as a server as well. So it gave us incredible on-the-job training, but also took the elements from Le Select and, and being a sommelier and understanding food and flavor and the quintessential... Uh, I guess, historical heritage of French culinary, um, taking that and applying it to Lumiere was the success that everyone that set foot in that venue as a bartender, a server, a server assistant, an expediter, a cook, whoever it was that was under that roof really benefited from being part of that, that, that way of working. And of course, in Canada, we don't have, we don't have Michelin stars. So Relais and Chateau and Relais Gourmand were really you know, the oh, yeah. super, super top of the heap in terms of where you could get what sort of, you know, commendations you could get as a, as a restaurant or a hotel. And so from there, you know, we, we, we did um, amazing stuff in Vancouver from 2007 until probably, when did I move? My goodness, I, I moved in 2019. So it was, it was 12 years of opening bars, opening restaurants, curating really unique and one-of-a-kind beverage programs, working with some of the most innovative and, and coolest chefs and, and managers in the industry to, to really cultivate a culture in Vancouver that felt like it had more in common with the West Coast of North America um, with a sprinkling of you know, Canadian cuisine. So it was, uh, it was a very, very cool time to be running programs. And um, in 2000, 10 when Jonathan and I met and you know we opened our first company within six months and opened our second company six months later we had a, a boutique catering and events company called Kale and Nori Culinary Arts Inc which is the company today that still owns Bittered Sling which is our bitters company and yeah. we you know we we tried to take as much of our experience and our spiritual connection with nature with food and with people and of course with beverage and blend that into into a concept that felt really really authentic and it's you know we we call it sort of like the bittered sling lifestyle rather than just being a bitters brand it's a lifestyle brand because there there is something intrinsically connected to people and when you activate food and beverage in in group settings and you know and and you become inspired by the people that are in front of you as much as uh, you hope to inspire them. There's something really special that happens. So, you know, this this is a really long story. I mean, when you when you ask someone how they got to where they are and they you know started 24 years ago, it it, it <laughs> tends to be a very very long answer. And I didn't even get to the Diageo part yet. My I know. Goodness. Yeah, don't worry. We're on the edge of our seats. <laughs> oh, okay. on the edge of your seats. Okay. So in. <laughs> So in, uh, in 2015, it was, um, I guess, a, a week, the week before I participated in World Class, it uh, was the week that we launched Speed Rack in Canada. And oh, myself yeah. and another bartender, Danielle Tataran, uh, who, who opened the Kiefer Bar. So her and I opened two bars roughly at the same time in Vancouver. I opened, uh, well, didn't open it. I took over after about two years, but Uva Wine and Cocktail Bar and Danielle opened the Kiefer Bar. And so the two of us 
became really, really close friends. We've been close friends for years. And uh, Lynette Marrero and Ivy Mix asked us both if we would be interested in helping bring Speedrack to Canada. Of course, we said 100%, let's help you do that. So we had a very intense couple of months leading up to that. And then simultaneously, the previous winner of World Class Canada, Grant Sini, from 2014 in Canada, he said, Lauren, I really think that you should join World Class this year. And I said, I don't think it's for me. I got to be honest. I'm, you know, I've, I've been in the industry already for almost 20 years. And, you know, I, I feel like this is a great program for younger bartenders that are aiming to, you know, get their names out there. But I'm really happy with what's going on right now. I'm not sure that, that I really need to, to do that. And he said, yeah, but you've got a good chance at winning. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, you know, and also, I think you're misinformed on what world class is, as a lot of people are. They, you know, we think it's we think it's just a competition. We didn't, I didn't understand back then that it was part of a, a big global community that that brought people together from all over the world. And uh, so I participated. It was the day after Speed Rack. We were so exhausted. I was so exhausted. And then I competed in the, in the, um, I guess the regional finals. And what's funny is I actually didn't even win my heat. I came, oh, really? uh, I came third in Vancouver, but what had happened was that year they took the top 10 of cumulative scores across Canada. And those were the people that competed in the national final. So even though I didn't win my city, I ended up being one of the top 10 that traveled to Chicago to compete in the Canadian final in 2015. So once I, I, I figured, you know, time had lined up uh, correctly, right time and place to, to see where things were going to go. And I thought, well, this will probably be the last competition I ever compete in. I competed previously and did quite well and uh, thought, um, well, let's give it, the, give it the last go here. And in Chicago, I was, I was so inspired by the challenges because it brought, it did bring together everything that I'd previously been involved in in my career from, you know, from the wine studies, from, you know, from the acting and production, from the comedic, from uh, you know, the things that I studied in university, I felt like this is the way to bring everything together. And I ended up winning it. And from there, I, you know, I stood on stage and they announced, you know, and Lauren Mote, you're the winner of World Class Canada, and you're going to South Africa in August to compete in the global final. And I remember standing on stage and it was like the sheer shock. And I thought, oh my God, did they say August? And then I looked at my calendar afterwards and I was due to be in South Africa the day after my wedding. So, no way. Yeah. So I mean, it's like, it's a combination of all these weird timing moments. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was chatting with, with Jonathan and I said, I mean, what do we do? And he says, I don't know. Do we postpone it? And I said, no, you know what? This is part of what makes this story interesting and so crazy is that we didn't have time to even do the regional final because of speed rack. Like I don't have time to do the global final because of our wedding, but I think it's part of the story. And hopefully one day I'll be able to tell that story to Chris Menning about this exact situation. <laughs> See how it all exactly. works out. <laughs> it does indeed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I ended up, you know, we were, we're putting our wedding together and essentially being, being, you know, two people that own an events company, we have planned a lot of weddings for other people. So we thought our wedding is going to be super cool. So we had a little budget put aside for that. And then world-class happened. And I thought, well, I guess half that budget is now going to world-class because I really wanted to make a, a big deal about it. And okay. uh, so, you know, the few, a few thousand bucks, you know, that I had, uh, I put together some, some really cool things over a, a month and a half 
uh, for world class in South Africa, ended up getting married. It was an amazing day. So I see from pictures, don't really remember much. I was so stressed out. And the following day I traveled to South Africa with Grant. So we, the joke is, is that I went on a honeymoon to South Africa with a man who was not my husband. Um, because Jonathan <laughs> yep. stayed home. He said, should I oh, come? Listen. And I said, I mean, I can, I can get you a flight if you want to come. And he said, no, I think this is a thing that you need to focus on just you. I'll be here. We'll go on another honeymoon another time. So Great. again, greatest husband ever. <laughs> so went, went to South Africa and um, it, it was interesting because I felt I felt older than a lot of bartenders, you know, it, I don't know if this ever happened to you, Chris, where you've walked into a room and you've, you know, you're like, I should be here. And then you walk in, you're like, should I be here? Am I supposed to be here? Is this like weird? Yeah. Did I like miss all the signs? And I thought this is, uh, this is going to be sort of like the last moment where I'm in a situation with giant groups of bartenders of people that are just like me on a global level. So, you know, I, I, competed in every challenge. I loved every single one. I did some crazy stuff. I had actors and all kinds of stuff. It felt very personal to me. It was the opposite of IBA. It was the opposite of what I think anyone had expected in terms of here comes a, a world-class bartender from Canada and let's see how prim and proper she is. And it was like, nope, just the opposite. It's, you know, you, you, you bartend and you produce these, these presentations in the same way as you work in your specific bars. And I thought that was really cool. So I was really happy with, you know, everything, how it, how it turned out. I knew exactly the moment where I screwed up and, and was not in the top six. And that's always a hard pill to swallow, but placed in the top 12 and it helped to, launch my global career, uh, as it were, because um, instead of being upset that I didn't make it to the top six, as a lot of people were, I sort of turned around and realized that there were, you know, 300 people staring at me that were part of Diageo, part of our global, you know, media family from all parts of the world that were there covering the event and learning more about what we did as bartenders. And it felt like a really amazing stage to be on and recognize in that moment that if you've got a captive audience of people that are looking at you and you've got a stage, what are you going to say? And that yeah. was sort of, I guess, the beginning of the rest of my life that started in 2015. So had a couple of businesses and, you know, two years after, after doing uh, world-class, it, it just felt like the right time and place after helping to curate training programs for the Canadian, uh, the world-class Canada program and helping to develop and, create opportunities for bartenders, not just in Canada, but all around the world. Now that we had the stage was set, we could, we could produce, you know, incredible opportunities for bartenders that perhaps thought they didn't have any opportunities. And that is really what became the passion for me within world class. And I guess what eventually led to me taking on the role of the global cocktailian in 2017. Fantastic. Oh, what a story. You've, uh, you've been involved in so many different aspects of hospitality and it's really inspiring. So you said your role as global cocktailian. What does that entail? What is a normal uh, working day for you in that role? Well, it's really interesting because in 2017, when the role was developed, it was, it was meant to be the future of what an ambassador would be. And we still see quite, quite a few ambassadors that represent perhaps a singular brand, but representing a singular category of spirits is actually the direction. It's being an expert across multiple things rather than just one singular thing. And the Global Cocktailian was developed as a role 
that that could speak to every spirit category, that could speak to every brand, and could speak to how it shows up in the programs that we run that are focused on those brands and those categories. For example, education on world-class and Diageo Bar Academy. Um, we've got aspirational programming on how we educate the, the at-home guest and the at-home bartender to, to develop the confidence and the ability to make great drinks at home. How do we inspire people to um, think of bartenders on the same level as the best chefs in the world? How do we get food and flavor together in the same moment? How do we inspire the next generations of bartenders to come up through the ranks and be able to have you know, a, a similar um, richness in their career as we've had? So it, it's a really aspirational role that is led by the Diageo Reserve portfolio. So I think it's, um, you know, when you're, when you're some of the largest brands in the world, these are incredible opportunities to really develop current and future generations of bartenders and encouraging people to continue coming into the industry. It's so good that, you know, programs like this are available now for people to, to be involved in. People have a lot of time now for education and there's a lot of different resources out there, but I feel maybe direction is not quite there either. What would you recommend to these up and coming bartenders? What are sort of the steps for education, the route they should take? Well, I think, I think this, this is sort of covering off uh, maybe a section of sustainability because sustainability is sort of a combination of people, profit, and planet. So we, we, uh, for me, I look at all three of those things as equally important. So from a, uh, from a personnel aspect, I think, it's, I think it's very, very important now more than ever that we are reaching out and linking up with the people that really inspire us. Um, I remember a, a bartender asking me a few years ago, I'm so inspired by the journey of your career and I would love to learn more so I can do something similar. But I didn't really have any advice back then to say you should do this or you should do that because it didn't, I, I don't feel like my, my journey was so ordinary that you could just, you know, replicate it. Um, so what I, what I mentioned is, you know, find the people in the industry that really inspire you. If, you know, Lynette Marrero really inspires you or Jeffrey Morgenthaler really inspires you. If, you know, Cami Vidal really inspires you, then reach out to those people and have a conversation. And if they're running bars, that's great. You just try and get in any way that you can as a, as a bar back or as a server assistant, as what, whatever that level is. And maybe in the time that we're in right now, when Ago Perone from, you know, the Connaught is doing at-home sessions, showing you how to do yeah. the martini trolley, you know, in, in the comfort of his, uh, of his kitchen, still wearing his little suit. I mean, these are moments where you can send messages across on Instagram and Zoom and, you know, say, how do you do that? Or what are the things that inspire you? And, and you have like this moment of really engaging one-on-one -on -one with the people that um, have helped you find your place in your career. And I think that's a very important thing. So from a person standpoint, uh, firstly, people need to, we need to focus on one-on-one -on -one relationships. And the silver lining of the current situation we're in is that people have never been more accessible than they are right now. Everyone is willing to chat, willing to share secrets, willing to, um, to help out, willing to provide like their level of hospitality, which I think is, um, well, we talked about this earlier. We were so busy in the past, we just didn't have that that chance. Now, from a um, from a planet standpoint, I think we need to be more resourceful now um, to take this time to upskill into areas that we hadn't experienced before. So, if we were working in a bar before, or we had a brand before, or we had been working on 
different projects and programs. And we felt maybe sometimes like we phoned it in, we phoned in our zero waste program, we phoned in our reusable straws, we phoned in a few of these things that felt like in the moment everyone was doing, so we should jump in. Now it gives everyone a chance to determine what the biggest issues are, how we can better prepare for them, what are the tools and resources necessary to make sure that when, you know, in the moment that we're in right now, and then whatever our new normal is coming back, that we can fix a lot of those problems. And, you know, there, there have been problems with, um, you know, with resourcefulness in our, in our industry, but there's also, you know, challenges related to mindfulness and well-being. There's challenges related to, uh, you know, livable wages and, you know, front lines of hospitality communities. So I think, you know, the, the people in the planet aspect are very important. And then finally profit, it's, important that businesses are, are, are taking these moments and maybe those bartenders that are, and I do say lucky enough, lucky enough to be kept on staff that somehow um, the bars and the businesses have been able to uh, continue paying and supporting their teams, take these times now to develop new streams of income, new branches of, uh, of business that can be implemented, not just now, but um, in the future when some of these businesses reopen, that um, they'll be able to add, you know, that incremental revenue to their businesses in, in order to make up perhaps for probably not all the lost revenue, but, you know, a good chunk of it at least. Sure. Yeah, completely agree. You mentioned some of these extra income streams and maybe what some businesses can do. Have you got any in mind that you can recommend? Yeah, it's interesting because depending on the region of the world, things might change. And, and well, you know, I can, I can recommend resources and tools that people should look into. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's great to listen to podcasts too, because I think there's some really good information that's on, say, Eric Castro's podcast, for example. He just did a, a great bartender at large episode with Bobby Hugel from uh, Texas, who owns many venues. And he's got some great okay. insight and ideas on um, some different, uh, you know, avenues of how to how to prepare for reopening and how to deal with, you know, the situation that you're going in right now, as well as Eater. And, um, you know, there's, there's quite a few podcasts out there. But I would say just at first glance, it's looking at ways to generate the income, but through the hospitality that your venue and your specific concept would provide already. So for example, if that's like a takeout or pickup program, then how instead of just you know putting bottles in a bag and shipping them off using uber eats or something else is there you know this added value that you can extend to your regulars where you can actually provide an experience that arrives in a small package perhaps it's accompanied with you know a video learn how to make this drink at home and here's the video to do so but it's not just you've got cocktail delivery at home the guests are becoming like our guests are becoming incredibly educated before they used to rely really on coming into the bar and having these face-to-face -face conversations with us in order to learn the history of the Negroni or, you know, how to make the perfect daiquiri or, you know, uh, what's their, their favorite tequila to use in a margarita, for example. But I think guests are educating themselves in the same way that bartenders are upskilling at the moment to learn new new things and new concepts so we also have to sort of raise you know a rising tide raises all boats and we need to know that you know the tide is rising very very quickly so 
you know, I, I would say the, the cocktail delivery model is something really interesting to look into, but also, you know, the takeout, uh, turning perhaps your storefront into like a pop-up shop, uh, for example, um, when we get into moments of, you know, social distancing in different spaces, you know, can we, if our uh, venues are going to be reduced by 50% capacity. Do we have outdoor spaces that we can open up? Do you have like a vacant parking lot or, you know, like a uh, somewhere that has licensing around your venue on a corner that that you can add some more tables and areas for people to to, to hang out? So I, I think, uh, you know, there, there's just going to be a lot. And I'm sure you've seen that every every bartender and their mother has a YouTube page now. Um, Yep. And, and so it's, it's how do you be authentic? Because I don't think doing a video on teaching someone how to make a margarita is going to cut it. That was fine, yep. you know, pre-existing conditions. But now we're, we're, we're in the moment where people need more. They need the authentic self. We need to really uh, rely on our regulars. Um, we need to try and find ways of developing ourselves and um, blending hobbies and disciplines together to create almost new hospitality professionals with different skill sets. And I think it's going to be a, a really, a really interesting time, but luckily there's a lot of resources out there to, to help. And I feel like yeah. it's optimistic, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, drinking culture's changed and you're right. The consumer base has, is very educated now. So things do have to change. I mean, we, um, we touched recently on trends in, in the podcast and what will be coming over the next couple of years, I suppose. What do you see being the next big trends? So we, we've kind of had low ABV. What would you think is the next thing? I love, I love the word trends and we use it so frequently. I think it's a, it's a, a blanket you know, word just like sustainability is or like organic is <laughs> um, to describe something that really has no really has no focus. So I, I, I feel like within the trends, I think it's important to identify that certain things that are still considered trends uh, shouldn't be called trends. It's more like life has just changed and this is the way of life going forward. Um, sustainability is definitely within there. And I think if we, when we break that down, um, just as we mentioned previously, it's, it's finding the balance between people, profit and planet and how that affects, um, uh, you know, every aspect of, of what we're doing. Um, there's, there's also, you know, the focus on on doing things at home. We don't know what lies ahead in the future, and and the only thing that we can do is is perhaps think about it with an optimistic yet a realistic lens on what the future may hold. And the future needs to start now. We can't wait and and say, well, when we go back in a month, when we do this in two months, we just we just don't know because the reality is that. Um, you know, restaurants, when, when they end up uh, reopening in whatever capacity or whatever, whatever that future looks like, they'll be at 50% capacity. They're going to have to invest heavily in opening inventory. Same with bars. You know, if they've um, depleted their inventory, it's, it's going to be a significant investment. So we, we just don't know what the future holds in terms of, of that. So I think bearing that in mind, the, the trends change a little bit based on that. So what, what I think in, in terms of trends, we are still focused on no and low. I think um, it's, it's everything with an authentic message. We wanna make sure that, you know, if sure. we're, we're doing it, like for example, if I'm doing a video on how to make tapache at home, it's, you know, I, I always reference Jeffrey Morgenthaler's hilarious video of, this is how we make a cocktail video. And it's, it's such a good laugh uh, of just how bartenders do it. And now we're going to put the gin in the drink. But I think <laughs> yeah. if we're, if we're going to show people videos on how to do things now, it needs to be tangible things that 
haven't really uh, made it across the camera before uh, to those people at home. It needs to feel really authentic, really personal. Um, how I am going to teach a, you know, a session on how to make things a windowsill fermentation or you know growing onions in a cup or <laughs> whatever it is it needs yeah. to feel very lauren it needs to feel very much like people are tuning in to spend time with me and they're going to learn something rather than oh let's just learn this thing so i think uh you know we we want to focus on you know very authentic messages managing that that conversation with mindfulness and well-being is critical there's some really great people out there that are doing wonderful things in the category beyond you know uh claire and ben uh, from seedlip and acorn and uh you know cami vidal i've mentioned her a few times on the maison wellness um yes you know, true. amy ward in the u.s the health tender uh yeah. we also have um uh, tim from healthy health yeah, he yeah. podcast yeah tim as well and then we've also got um uh, some some other really cool folks like Anna Walsh, who's the bar manager of the Virgin Mary up in Dublin, and they're closed right now. But I mean, learning from her on great ways to make and like sort of make at home these really cool non-alcoholic zero-proof ingredients to have really epic um, mindful drinks at home, I think would be amazing. Like she should totally do that. She should do like a little video okay. series. Um, so that uh, I think still focusing on. Uh, you know, reusable packaging. I mean, what happens when the world runs out of takeout boxes? You know, we're focused on on takeout bottles and takeout boxes and things like that. Is there a way that we can think of like the next layer of what, you know, the, the sustainable long-running approaches to, to running, um, you know, a takeout program? There's also, um, you know, from delivery, you know, a, a lot of these companies, they, they take about 30% of the sale in order to deliver your product. So is there a better yeah. way that we can think about the future of pickup and delivery with our venues. And I, I, I think the catering is a really big aspect as well. It's uh, not only just, you know, taking the experience to the guest directly, but it's also, you know, instead of the one-off, someone calls and they need you to cater their wedding with, with beverage service, wouldn't it just be something that you develop further and make that just an actual part of your business model and your business plan? So I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot out there and I think paving um, paving the way to make sure that everyone understands that they're all equal in this too. I think that's a really uh, important thing to, to hit home and, and what we do with World Class Community Week and Diageo Bar Academy and also with Bittered Sling. With everything that I'm involved in, I want to make sure that the message that I'm sending across is that where there may have been a disconnect in the industry before where you know the people that were really championed for what they were doing were way up here. And then everyone else was sort of here trying to figure out how to close that gap and they couldn't figure out their place yeah. in the universe. Everyone's kind of all here right now, which is a good place to be. When you find that you're, you've got an equal opportunity with the people around you and you have the equal opportunity to provide leadership in, in, in a time like this, what does, the, what does the future look like for you? We wanna encourage and, and give the space for, for people to become innovative. Like how can we champion these really, really cool ideas that are, that are coming out of you know, difficult situations? And that's, that's where I'm most excited for, for the trend. It's, it's really focusing on community, on people, on you know, face-to-face -face interactions, regardless of what that, that layer looks like. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future, but I'm also a, a realist in the moment, knowing that what we're going through right now is very challenging and there's probably more challenging times ahead. 
very true, very true. Thank you for that, Lauren. I'm, I'd like to go back and talk about Bittersling. And uh, I've actually got them at home, the, the whole case, and I love to use them. They're really great. Really? But, um, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, one thing I actually wanted to touch on before that, though, um, you mentioned your wedding. You wanted to make it very cool. And I, I'd really like to hear like what you did, because actually <laughs> I, I'm from Relais and Chateau, too. I worked in one of their properties, and uh, I had to do weddings every week, basically. So, yeah, it, it was quite interesting. But what were some of the, the cool things you had on at yours? So we had a... It's... Do you want me to share my screen? Should I share my screen and just show you a sure. photo or yeah, two? Would that be cool? Okay. okay. That's Absolutely. the, the, the that. beauty of Zoom. I mean, this is what makes it so much easier than Instagram Live and Facebook Live. I can actually just open my computer and, and show you some cool stuff. Uh, so what, uh, what Jonathan and I sort of went through is, uh, you know, we had done so many weddings for other people. And you also need to know that, uh, hold on, there we go, world class. I'm like world-class, no, Jonathan Lauren wedding, no, world-class wedding. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, so we, uh, when we had done all of these weddings and parties for other people, there were always these like, these moments where we'd say, you know what would be really cool for your wedding? And then we'd pitch it, we'd be so excited. And they say, that's not really our thing. We're like, oh God, so sorry. Jonathan <laughs> was, uh, was the chef de cuisine and designed all of the really innovative, uh, cuisine and, and new ideas in food and flavor uh, for the largest catering company in Vancouver. They, they were the ones that, uh, that curated um, the British Columbia Canada House at the Turin and Beijing Olympics, also the Vancouver Olympics. So he was a head chef for a lot of really cool stuff. And cool. What, I, what I always thought was very cool about uh, mine and Jonathan's approach to how we would throw events, um, it was the fact that uh, we would be able to, I'm just trying to find the right picture here. So I got it. No worries. Um, we were trying to, to think of how we could do it on a shoestring budget. And I, and I think when you, when you try and look at how, um, you know, how people might be able to do uh, really cool things on a budget, you end up looking to chefs, bartenders, and people in the industry <laughs> because we call in every favor possible, I think, in that, in that moment. Um, so we've got, uh, I'm going to just share my screen here and hopefully this all works out. Okay, can you see that? I can, yeah, the store okay. trip on the belief. Yeah, so we so we did we did like really crazy stuff with our with our wedding. I mean, we had this beautiful oh, venue okay. you can see. Um, it's got like this big rolling landscape in the back. It was an Airbnb, a 1940s house um, that was right oh. on the edge of uh, Spanish banks in uh, Vancouver, which is beautiful. So in the background, Great. that's the Pacific Ocean and the North Shore Mountains. Um, Jonathan and I are also totally uh, obsessed with Star Wars, Star Trek, um, the 70s and 80s. And so we made that the, wow, theme, of our, the theme of our wedding. Um, our guest book was this big barrel. And for anyone that knows That's us, cool. they know that Jonathan's nickname is Chop and my nickname is Chop as well. So it's like, it's very strange. It's hard to explain where that came was from. That, did they both come around before you met or was that sort of... Uh... No, I don't, I don't know if you like, you think about like cute one syllable words that you say to people that you, that you think are awesome. It's, I don't know, you're a peach or you're a plum or, you know, for us, it's, you're a chop. I don't know. It sounded really cute. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, we had, uh, so this is just the setup, find like some, we just, you know what, to be honest, when you've got, when you've got people that have uh, spent their in, entire careers 
you know, throwing parties for other people, we, we end up doing some very, very fun things. And I'm sorry, there's like a lot of food. There's like 200 photos that I'm trying to find here. I, I just want to show you the outfits because we did our wedding was themed on 70s and 80s. And so we had a do-it-yourself punch station. Everyone was uh, dressed up in their finest and weirdest outfits inspired by the 70s and 80s. Yeah. I, I was wearing, you know, a green, a green dress that I kind of looked like a, like a high-end cupcake. And, uh, you know, it's just like really, really fun stuff. And we, so we had this big venue for, uh, for three hours. And from there, we ended up uh, putting everyone on a school bus as along with all of our uh, punches that we did. And, okay, maybe, hold on, I'm getting close, I'm getting close. This, see, I opened up the floodgates. I said, yeah, let me share my screen. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> I have to go through so many photos. Um, yeah. But uh, we, uh, we ended up putting everyone on a school bus, dropped half the people off at, uh, at a bar that were ready to, um, to receive uh, the after party. And then we took the other half to, to uh, a venue where a, a really good friend of ours, Chef JC Poirier, was uh, doing our our wedding dinner, and that was really really cool. So we had, we just had so many events happening. We had uh, just you know, as as I mentioned, we had this uh, this moment where we realized that world class and our wedding was happening at the same time, and we had to sort of take part of the budget, and it was really difficult because we ended up planning our whole our whole wedding as well, um, ourselves. Okay, I found it. I've got it, I've got it. It took a while. We've got it, Sorry, okay. Guys. I've got it, okay, hold no on. Worries. Okay, here we go. Let's see, um, so we've got. Oh, I like the, the cream see there. <laughs> yeah, and so this band, so this was a band that I that I always oh, hired cool. at a bar that I was running and that's the James, uh, James Danderfer Trio and these guys mm -hmm. are so talented. And they teach at uh, at the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra as well. And we've been working with them for years. And so we said, so if we bring you in to play at our wedding, can you play, you know, some songs that are 70s and 80s themed, but in the style of your, like, your trio? He said, yeah, no problem. So we had, you know, really cool Toto songs and stuff from the 70s and 80s that were being played on, you know, sax <laughs> saxophone, clarinet, yeah. drums, whatever. It was so cool. This is like, we set up our church benches uh, down at the bottom of the hill. Everyone just yeah. dressed up in their finest moments. Oh, I want to be able to show you this one. This is, um, this is a, a picture of um, my mother and I. I don't know if you can see that. Hold on. I've second. got a small version. I can okay, see the I green. There we go. Oh, wow. Yeah. Brilliant. So my mom and I, and uh, I had like a little mohawk and Jonathan had a mohawk, uh, our best our best person had a mohawk. Her name is. I love uh, the dress. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so I our, about a cupcake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like our friend, our friend Danny was uh, was our best person at the wedding. You know, she uh, the same person that uh, that we ended up um, uh, working with on Speed Rack, and she would just keep moving from side to side, and that's that's Jonathan there, and then in the middle, that's yeah. David Wallowitnick, who's another well-known bartender in Vancouver who has uh, the Drunken Botanist book, and he wrote this insane oh, yes. service uh, based on, you know, 70s and 80s, you know, just anecdotes with a sprinkling of weird things about food and beverage. Anyway, it was such a crazy day. And it, it was- sounds It sounds great. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. So there you go, you got like this little run through. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the photos are great, really. So, yeah, let's go into Bitted Sling. So that's obviously you and Jonathan, and that's been going for how many years now? So back in 
Well, I guess back in 2009, I was running a bar called The Refinery in Vancouver, and I was making um, a, a huge collection of bitters, vermouths, aromatized wines, um, you know, different things from scratch, sodas. And it was, it was a program that, um, that imbibed magazine at the time uh, when they did this big profile in Vancouver right before the Olympics they called us the cocktail kitchen they said you know and you can't miss the refinery because in the heart of Vancouver's entertainment district is the refinery and they're making everything from scratch and it's totally weird and crazy and you should go check it out so mm -hmm. underneath us and all around us on the street were all nightclubs and we were this this cocktail bar that specialized in something so specific that people had to like weather the crowds and get through, right. um, you know, crowds of, of people heading to nightclubs in order to come and see us. So Jonathan, back in 2010, he, he and another well-known chef uh, from Victoria named Pete Zambri, they ended up coming in because he had read that I was, I was doing some crazy stuff with uh, nitrous, nitrous oxide, um, you know, uh, pressure, pressurized spices and liquids. Um, with coffee, just some random like lab report that I had written and posted on an industry online magazine. So he read it and he thought, oh my God, this person is so crazy. Are you sure that she's a bartender? Uh, because what he was doing at the time in, in cuisine was really similar. He was using some modernist techniques and doing some really cool things that showcased, um, you know, West Coast cuisine. So he and the chef uh, came in and I took them through this three hour tour of cocktails and tinctures, bitters, vermouths, and aromatized wines through the lens of what we were doing at the refinery. And he had never, he mentioned that he had never experienced uh, flavors in beverage in the way that I had just taken him through. And he'd never met a bartender that focused on flavor in the same way that he as a chef had. And he'd been in, in Star Chefs and uh, Cater Source and traveled all over the world in Saloni del Gusto. So for him, having this really global lens and innovative lens on, on food, um, he was really enamored by what we were doing at the refinery. And I think he also thought I was really cute. And I thought he was very cute. So we ended up, uh, so we ended up going on a date the next day, actually. He asked me out. Brilliant. Um, and, uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, listen, time's a wasted. Life is too short, you know? <laughs> True. Um, so uh, we, went out, we went out the next day and we were sort of inseparable ever since. And that was uh, March 12, 2010. And um, I, I would, in, let's say, a year later, uh, we ended up opening our first company. And during that time, we were still, I was still making bitters because I was still at the refinery. And uh, we were, we were, you know, I was developing some really cool flavors and really honing in on, on uh, how we were using them. And they, they felt quite holistic in nature. They were uh, no sugar and no coloring and just really focused on telling the stories of where the spices came from and the cultures that influenced the flavor profiles from around the world because I always wanted to have this like really global lens on, on how we could develop flavors. So in, in 2010, that's what Jonathan and I were doing. We were honing in on that. And when I left the refinery in 2011, Jonathan and I focused on bringing, uh, you know, bittered sling in, in like a really much bigger way. And that was because Tales of the Cocktail contacted us and said, listen, we're doing the first ever satellite festival outside of New Orleans and we're doing it in Vancouver and you need to be part of it. So I was part of it. And then they said, but you and Jonathan, the caveat is that you need to launch Bittered Sling at the first ever bitters market. So this was before the bitters market ever existed at Tales of the Cocktail. 
Um, and we're bringing Harold McGee up. We're bringing all these people up and we thought, oh my God. So we need to, we need to get permits. We need to commercialize. We need to get the testing done. We have to get everything ready so that we can launch February, 2012 with the actual commercial lineup that is, is ready to use across Canada and potentially anywhere else in the world. And so uh, we did that and Bittered Sling was born on, on that day and from like a commercial lens. And that summer we launched it in New Orleans. And what, what has always been the difference uh, with Bittered Sling is that Bittered Sling was created when there were no other bitters really available in Canada. We helped to, we helped to curate how Canada creates products like this. There are antiquated liquor laws associated with macerations, with pre-batch cocktails, with oak maturation. You can't just walk into a bar in that time and just put things together and then sell it. It's not, it's not realistic. It takes a lot of uh, permits and licensing and insurance and trial and testing and um, quality control. And that's what we really focused on. And so when we launched this sugar-free, coloring-free, all whole botanical macerated with, you know, uh, at, at the time was 100% British Columbia fruit spirit made from recycled fruit. So this is before ugly fruit was a thing. We were using recycled fruit from Okanagan spirits in British Columbia. And so we had this really amazing uh, product that we had developed, which was a pure expression of a chef and bartender's palate in an indefinite shelf life product when stored in the same place that you store your high-end liquors at home. Um, and a little went a long way and it was adding a depth of character and flavor and inspired creativity far beyond what I think we ever could have done in sort of like a perishable product if we had developed a soda or a vermouth or something like that. Um, so that was, uh, you know, that was almost 10 years ago. And since then we've, uh, we've, we've, you know, always been available across Canada. We're available across the U.S., available in the Caribbean. Uh, we launched in the United Kingdom uh, a year ago. We're available now in the EU and the Netherlands. And Bittered Sling is still made in the same way that it was made since day one. Um, great. Full botanicals, good. great spirit. And, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that, um, you know, people always knew that we were a small business as well. You know, we've had never had any investors. It's just Jonathan and I, just from years okay. working in bars and restaurants. And so it's just been really cool to see how it's evolved over the years and uh, the love that people have uh, for the brand and the love that people have for us. And then we pay it full, full circle. We like to champion, you know, the bitter babes and anybody that uses our product. We're just so thrilled and over the moon. And we're just excited to see what the future holds for, for that, for our little brand, Bittered Sling. This is going to be a tough question. What is your favorite flavor? I personally really like uh, the grapefruit and hops and the coffee as well, because it's just such a great flavor in there. But what's your favorite? Well, it's a, uh... Oh man, it's it's interesting because it's like it's it's almost like choosing your favorite child, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I mean, it might be tough. Yeah. So I mean, over the years since uh, since Bitterslings inception, I would say that we have brought forward from ideation to finished commercial product, you know, close to twenty different flavors, and today we have uh, you know ten or eleven that are available, uh, ten in the U.S. and then twelve across Canada, six in the U.K. and 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 the EU. So it's um, it's tough, but I think because it was one of the first ones that we created, the plum and root beer, okay. is the jam because it yeah. it it acts as a as as almost like a tiki bitters, you can use it. We call it island time. 
um, because it, it works great with, with tropical flavors, with, um, you know, with citrus that happens to be on the sweeter side, with anything that has, has seen oak maturation. Um, and it's, it's root beer through the lens of where the spices come from, through the lens of telling a cultural story about uh, subcontinent India and Sri Lanka and Asia, where all the spices are coming from with sarsaparilla, there's no sassafras. And it just it just worked out so incredibly well. It's become the quintessential bitters um, for a lot of people to even just change their old fashioned, to change their Manhattan, to change something really simple. And that's what, what we love so much about Bittered Sling is that while the songs are all different, the undertone of how that orchestra plays is very, very prevalent across the entire lineup of flavors. And it works incredibly well, um, you know, in a lot of applications. So um, I love the grapefruit and hops though, too. I mean, the, the combination right. of the combination of hops that we use, the Cascade, Willamette and Chinook hops, they're okay. equally acidic as they are bitter, as they are floral, as they are yes. citrusy. And it just works, it works so well. And I'm glad that's your favorite because that's also one of my favorites, but plum and root beer for the okay. win. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. Um, well, we're going to wrap up very soon. But before we do, I'd love to hear about what cocktails you're making at home. Uh, maybe if you can give us a tip for, for any aspiring bartenders out there. Yeah, definitely. I, it, at, at this time, I'm actually really still really focused on, um, on doing some home ferments. And for mm. those that don't have access to, say, uh, tapache or kombucha or kvass that you've made at home, then definitely you can, you can buy some, some you know, store-made not store made, I guess store purchased kombucha, but we do, uh, we do have our, our Bittersling YouTube page as well, which has, um, you know, right. Jonathan teaching you how to make kombucha from scratch and we'll, we'll have tapache and other things up there too. But I think I'm still in the highball mode. You know, I, I, okay. maybe it's because the seasons are changing and I just love long drinks so much. And, you know, a couple of the, the ones that we're making at home right now, we've got the the hazelnut highball, which is, uh, you know, Johnny Walker Black, which has been washed with hazelnut oil. And then we combine that with, um, oh, yeah. with, yeah, with sherry and a little bit of acid, a touch of sugar, and then top it with our, um, with uh, just like a standard ginger turmeric kombucha, but you could easily top it with tonic or soda water. And so things like that, um, I, I think we're just inspired by, you know, I'm like, inspired by how the seasons are making us feel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we did a really, we did a really cool one the other day that one of the, it, it's funny to talk about the byproduct of tapache because I mean, you technically make tapache with the byproduct of what you've used with the inside of the pineapple, but we, uh, we actually chopped up the pineapple with the intention of making tapache. So the byproduct becomes the inner fruit that you would normally just, just eat or do something with. And we fermented that with uh, with some salt, pepper, uh, with water, ambient yeast, and uh, cardamom and, and cardamom sugar and star anise, and after 48 hours, it created this incredible yeasty, blooming, acidic flavor. And so we cooked that out, and then created a, a clarified syrup from it, um, just at home. We don't have any fancy equipment. We use like cooking utensils. There's no rotovaps. There's no sous vide. There's no yeah. nothing here. And from there, we made this fermented pineapple cordial, and that went into a Don Julio margarita. It went into a Tanqueray 10 Southside with French with fresh mint. It went into so many different drinks, and so we end up just making syrups and cordials, being very excited about them, and then using them with every spirit that we have to see how things could change or the application could change, uh, rather than making you know so many ingredients and having to plow through them. 
wow they all sound fantastic especially on um, the hazelnut i'm gonna try that out i do love fat washing it's it's a really cool technique yeah it's um, it's very very cool yeah and working with good fats as well you know we love working yeah. with uh with olives with coconut with peanuts uh with sesame pine nuts so sort of the sky's the limit unsung heroes of spices you know if, if yeah. you at home are are going to work with spices like maybe some of the unsung heroes are you know green cardamom mace nutmeg um maybe even lavender and roses if you consider the flowers sort of a, a spice uh fenugreek there's so many things that we have in our cupboard that we don't actually use unless we're making say Mexican food or we're making, you know, Indian food or something else. So it's pretty yeah. cool. And, and, and that's what makes bittered sling so special too. You know, you add like this, this amazingly complex bottle of dynamic spice blend that drastically changes even the simplest application. So in your hazelnut highball with, you know, a little orange and juniper bitters, or even the, um, the Arabica coffee bitters that you mentioned, like, yes, definitely. just be so cool. Sky's the limit. Great. Well, Lauren, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show, really. I mean, um, it's such an interesting life you've had and, and so many things you're doing right now. So I really appreciate it. And I think the audience are going to like it too. Oh, thanks. So thank it, it's been so awesome just chatting with you. And I feel like we could have chatted for hours. So yeah, it's good true. that you're going to stop this. <laughs> but um, yeah, really, really excited to uh, to hear from your audience. And, and hopefully if they have thank any you. questions, they can reach out anytime on uh, World Class Bittered Sling or Lauren Moat uh, Instagram. And we'll be happy to, to chat. I'll make sure that all the contact details are in the show notes for everyone. Fantastic. Thanks, lot, thanks Chris. Thank Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, guys, that was it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, please feel free to contact Lauren, like she said, uh, through her Instagram or through World Class. And check out what she's doing. She's just got some really interesting stuff going on, including the Bitter Sling YouTube channel, which I believe uh, they're showing how to make homemade fermentation and tapachi. Check in next week, every Monday at 2. We're going to have another episode with an incredible guest. And I really hope you have a wonderful week. Talk soon. <laughs>